Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1307, entitled Video Games Frilled the Radio Star. <laughs> Our podcast title is Mrs. Pod, We're Needed. Mm. I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And... We're trying to lighten up the mood a little bit today, mm-hmm. which is not why we decided to lead off with an in-memoriam. But remembering a good life and some great cultural contribution, I still think that can be a celebration. But you're right, we've we've done an interesting uh, off the front foot, but that's okay. Yeah. So in order to cushion the impact of that just a little bit, we're going to play an uplifting track from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Once More with Feeling, the Joss Whedon musical, and it's a walk through the fire. And at at this stage, Buffy and her Scooby gang have been through literally hell, a musical hell, and they've rallied and they're, they're getting into that one last bit of the little musical where they all walk towards the camera and and sort of muscle up and they're going to be fine. <laughs> I think, I hope we're all going to be fine eventually. <laughs> This is Joss Whedon, creator of Serenity, Buffy, and Angel. Welcome to New Melbourne, home of fish, fish-based activities, zero-G, and Radio 3 Triple R FM. Triple R, it's independent radio, and it aims to misbehave. Ah. Needed that. <laughs> that yeah. really did something. That was a bit of a salve for the old soul, that one. Yeah, and we're all feeling a bit like old souls at the moment. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes, good pick, Rob. That was a rousing rendition. Thanks to Joss and the cast of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Joss Whedon, of course. The musical, Once More We're Feeling. Now, the sad news that we have lost an icon of the genre, Dame Diana Rigg, which is to say... Enid Diana Elizabeth Rigg, who was born in 1938 on July the 20th and died on September the 10th, aged 82 in London, in England. Yeah, very sad for fans, and I use that cliche of a certain age, fans of the British television show, The Avengers, classic series. Nothing at all to do with the Marvel Comics Avengers. Well, actually, there has been some crossovers, and she was one of the leading lights of the Avengers back in the day. And besides that, had an enormous CV of genre-related properties on stage and screen, both large and small. So I thought we might have a a little bit of a a wander through some of her 
highlights of her career just to remember some of the great work that Dame Diana Rigg did in the day. And when I say the day, I mean right up to the present day, just about uh, she was still acting in various endeavours. Now, in 1957, she joined the Caucasian Chalk Circle and then later on in 1959 parlayed that into joining the Royal Shakespeare Company. So, yeah, 1959, there's a lot of people moving into um, mm. television and and movies there from the stage in that sort of mm. key decade in, in British pop culture. So from a bit part in A Midsummer Night's Dream, a 1959 TV movie, in 1965 to 1968, Diana Rigg appeared on the funkily surreal space age British spy-fi television series The Avengers, playing the secret agent Mrs. Emma Peel, opposite Patrick McNeese and John Steed. Now, she wasn't the first assistant in that show. Uh, initially, they'd started with a, a bloke, Dr. David Keel, played by Ian Hendry, and left after the uh, the first series when Steed then became the main character. So they started giving Steed companions, and because there's a lot of crossover between Doctor Who production people and the Avengers mm. and a lot of other shows at that time, there's a little bit of the same sort of thing going on here. Uh, the first one of the female companions or assistants or just fellow secret agents was Kathy Gale, played by Honor Blackman, mm-hmm. and then we came to Emma Peel with Diana Rigg in that role. Later on, there was Tara King, played by Linda Thorson. So this series ran from 61 until 69. You can still catch them in various places uh, at the moment. I don't actually know if they're streaming it anywhere, which is uh, Mm. a shame, but, you know, I'd I'd have to check on that. So they went into a a new Avengers series in 1976 and 1977 with a new companion, um, Joanna Lumley, played uh, Purdy. You know, so there was a later movie that we've seen with Uma Thurman playing Mm. the uh, (laughs) Emma Peel role. Emma yeah. I have actually a little more time for that movie than a lot of Avengers <laughs> fans had because it was kind of surreal and silly in its own right. Mm-hmm. You know, Sean Connery running around in an animal mascot costume or something. <laughs> it had that kind of Cookiness. thing going. Yeah. What was the uh, – it was one of the, the Thines brothers who was um, – I want to say Rafe. I think it was Rafe Stines. He actually cut the right dash in the bowler hat. Mm. And, of course, if you watch The Avengers, you'll remember Emma Peel in a leather cat suit or Mm. uh, later on her knitted ones, which were more comfortable apparently. It took her like 45 minutes to get into the leather one. She said it was like a wetsuit and it was awful. But she said that the big problem with the uh, the knitted cat suits were that they could bag at the knees, Mm-mm. which was sort of visually ugly on television. <laughs> Look, I need to be able to say that this is not the initial prototype for the the butt-kicking chick. I'm not sure actually what we would call it in British space-age patois from the swinging 60s, mm-hmm. but it doesn't really matter because obviously there were many earlier action heroines, you know, going back to the Nuxia women of the Wuxia cycles in Hong Kong action movies, even earlier, you know, Mm. I digress there. There's a whole zero G on that particular topic to be done. But anyway, um, yeah, but she is one of the ones in the Western world that's remembered most prominently and had an influence on following and characters ever since. Mm. So very iconic. She also got a 
proper role in a Shakespearean production of Midsummer Night's Dream in a 1968 movie, more than a bit part. And she also played uh, one of King Lear's daughters, Reagan, in a television play in 1983. Diana Rigg played a lot of grand dames well before <laughs> she actually got her, uh, her gong. Miss Constance Hard Broom in a 1986 TV film adaptation of The Worst Witch. What a which name. Is one of those, well, yeah, it's a, it's a supernatural school story. Mm-hmm. Uh, school. Later, Lady Honoria Deadlock in the Bleak House miniseries in 85. Just great names like Lady Harriet Vulcan, which was opposite Helena Bonham Carter in the television adaptation of Barbara Cartland's A Hazard of Hearts. (laughs) And a particular favourite of mine is where she played Adela Bradley in the Mrs. Bradley Mysteries. This is she's a well-to-do 1920s-era female sleuth who worked with a chauffeur, George Moody, who was played by Neil Dudgeon, who'd later become the new Inspector Barnaby in Midsummer Murders. Only a handful of episodes of Mrs. Bradley's mysteries were done, but uh, they're well worth catching up with if you like your historical procedurals. Oh, and Peter Davison and David Tennant, Doctor Who's 5 and Number 10, respectively, also are in that show. And speaking of whom, she played Mrs. Gillyflower in the 2013 serial The Crimson Horror, (laughs) opposite the 11th Doctor, Matt Smith, Mm -hmm. his companion Clara, and those daring 19th century consulting detectives Madame Vastra, Jenny and Strax in Diana Riggs' native Yorkshire, that one was set. She was also Diana the eponymous star of the 1973 one-season comedy about a divorcee in the rag trade who moved from the UK to New York. And in a science fictional vein in 2015, she was in the Doomsday series You, Me and the Apocalypse, which was one of those endearing British send-ups of the end of the world, in this case as a result of a, of a, comic, of a comet strike. Not a comic strike. <laughs> Disastrous in itself as that would be. In 2015, again, before passing away, the character of Lady Pagwell leaves a legacy in memory of her late husband to fund local new inventions. And as the only inventor in town, Professor Brainstorm is the obvious recipient. And so that's actually a Professor Brainstorm movie, and I remember reading those books when I was a kid. Mm. She also plays the voice of Mayor Pink Panda in the 2015 animated science fiction superhero series Pen Zero, part-time hero. And you will, of course, remember her in the 18 episodes of Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. where she plays Alina Tyrell from 2013 ah. to 2017. There we have the overlap. That's where I know her. Okay. Yeah, and she has some great lines in that. Mm, she's really fabulous. Stand out as a wicked cast member in a in a whole series full of wicked people. Her last television role, I think, was Mother Dorothea in the TV miniseries of Black Narcissus, which is currently in post production. So there's still a couple of Diana Rigg performances to be seen and treasured. Now, alongside of all this, she had a, a motion picture career too. And after the Avengers, she couldn't help, I think, become a Bond girl (laughs) in On Her Majesty's Secret Service in 1969, which means that she played Tracy Bond, James Bond's short-lived wife, opposite Australian George Lazenby. Hmm. Another standout film I thought was The Assassination Bureau. 
and that's a, a 1969 film directed by Basil Dearden, and uh, it had Oliver Reed in it and Telly Savalas, Kurt Jurgens, uh, a lot of interesting actors in that one. I think Roger Delgado from um, John Pertwee's era of Doctor Who was in that too. He played the original master in that series. And that's actually all spinning off a, an unfinished novel by uh, Jack London. It's a hoot, and Diana Rigg plays a, um, a woman's journalist in the early 1900s, and she's a suffragette too. And, you know, so she uncovers this bureau that specialises in killing for money, the Assassination Bureau, and she doesn't like that. So to bring it down, she actually commissions the bureau to assassinate its own chairman, which is Oliver <laughs> Reed. I like a great, that. A great idea. But you really know that you've only made it when you work with the Muppets. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And in 1981, she played another lady, Lady Holiday, in The Great Muppet Caper. Nice. So to further the procedural, she was in Evil Under the Sun, which is an Agatha Christie story, mm. of course. Mm. And she headlined a great cast in that, including Peter Ustinoff, matched verbal swords with Maggie Smith. Uh, Colin Blakely and Roddy McDowell and James Mason were also in that, and that's an excellent one. And so I think we'll actually have a bit of a sing-along with that and a bit of dialogue from Evil Under the Sun with Diana Rigg and Maggie Smith, grand old dames to both. Hi, this is Corey McAbee from Stingray Sam and the American Astronaut, and you're listening to Zero G on 3RRR FM. He does the things that folks don't do that need to be done. Yeah, she was wonderful. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Diana Rigg and Maggie Smith having a bit of a, a singer-off mm. there <laughs> with uh, Sir Peter Ustinov, amongst others, in the cast of Evil Under the Sun, a, a particularly interesting adaptation of an Agatha Christie story on film. I did want to mention one more film of Diana Riggs before we move along. Uh, 1973's Theatre of Blood, where she has a turn cool. as a character called Edwina Lionheart in a film that not only encompasses horror comedy but Shakespeare as well and Vincent Price. Uh, Vinnie was playing a, a killer knocking off critics in accordance with death scenes from the Bard's <laughs> plays. <laughs> You know that moment when the police come and talk to the offer and say, hello, 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 your work is being used as a template for murder. <laughs> Not a million miles from Vincent Price's cult classic role as the abominable Dr. Fibes. Mm. And so, yeah, a great fun, that one, Theatre of Blood. I mentioned that as a, a fan of Shakespearean productions, even the really odd ones, perhaps. <laughs> especially the really odd ones and offbeat ones. So there you go. Very sad to mark the passing of Diana Rigg, but not at all unhappy to revisit some of her great work in film and television. And as you heard before, she could actually sing a little bit too. Mm, yeah. Oh, yes. She's also in a, um, he says, mentioning one more film, an adaptation of Snow White. Oh. Guess which character she played in that. <laughs> All right, so Diana Rigg, no longer with us, but with us forever in the mediums of film and TV. Okay, so look, I can't possibly avoid, why would I want to, playing her classic, iconic 
Touchstone, The Avengers, the main title theme by Laurie Johnson. So thank you very much, Mrs. Peel. You'll always be needed. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, stacking Z's on Zero G. <laughs> Laurie Johnson's classic The Avengers theme mm. in memoriam of the late great Dame Diana Rigg. All right, now we shall trundle on over with nary a pause <laughs> too. We have to put a coin into the arcade machine mm. to, get, to get into this next bracket of Zero G. Now, I've really enjoyed some of the pop culture history documentary series that I've streamed on, on various services recently. The Toys That Made Us, for example. Mm. Yeah, yep. And, and I didn't really encounter video games in either a domestic console or arcade setting or even one of those little handheld toys, <laughs> I didn't really run into those growing up. So the first computer games that I actually encountered in the keyboard, as it were, were on my first home computer in the mid-1990s. So I was always seeing them in magazine ads, on television shows and in movies or referenced in books. So I felt that I had what's probably an entirely inaccurate perception of the early development of the medium. Unlike some of the other commonplace things I have little or no experience of, I have since made up for that lack of exposure with computer games with far too much time spent on them. <laughs> but I'm now glad to be taken onto a journey into the actual history of video games as opposed to what I thought it was. And in answer to a question that I'm sure somebody's going to ask and that I sometimes get wrong-footed on, yes, this documentary series is sometimes subtitled, especially when there are Japanese developers being interviewed. Mm, so, mm. Megan, tell mm. us about this show. Happily. So this was one that moseyed across my carousel on Netflix because they correctly assumed I'd be interested. So it's a documentary series. It's a Netflix original called High Score, and I mentioned it on the show a couple of weeks ago, and then we thought, yeah, let's take a look at it. So there's six episodes and they're about 40 minutes each. And as Rob's alluded to, they are indeed a look at the early development and emergence of the video game industry, but also on top of that, sort of its cultural contribution and the people behind some of the really big movements and leaps that were taken in those early days. So for me, I found it to be, so I guess to back up a little, it was very nostalgic for me. So I grew up with uh, my grandparents had an Atari. I remember playing Pitfall on the Atari quite a lot. I had a Sega Master System, the one that had the Alex Kid uh, sort of in it already, like you didn't need the cartridge. And so I spent a lot of time playing Sega and computer games on our like home PC and things like that, like off a of floppy disk. So a lot of this stuff felt very rich to me and felt very nostalgic as to sort of the stuff that I'd grown up with. So the documentary, kind of each episode details a different sort of angle on or time period of the early video game industry and including some themes of games of today and things like that. So it's narrated by Charles Martinet, who's actually a video game voice actor, which I thought was pretty cool. And <laughs> the series itself was created by France Costrell. So she had sort of worked on another 
documentary called 8-Bit Legacy. That was a show that she had worked on. And she thought, look, there's so much more here. I would love to be able to tell more of this story. So she pitched to Netflix this idea for High Score. And then, yeah, here it is. So it's sort of directed and produced by William Axe, Sam Lacroix, France Costrell, and Melissa Wood. And it really follows really the developers, the players, and the designers and creators of these games. So it it focuses a bit on the games themselves, but we're really talking to, you know, the creator of Mario, the creator of the Atari, people who developed the first, one of the first RPGs, kind of things like that. So, and it is designed to have a broad appeal. So I think one of the things I don't like is sort of when they have these things and it's like, oh, it's for gamers, like it's pitched at gamers, which is a term I don't like because I think everyone can be interested in games and there's so many games out there now that there's literally something for everyone. So I don't think there should be this kind of us and them thing. Uh, That's just my little pet peeve on the side there. Um, So, yeah, this documentary is really gives a lot of information and if you don't know very much about sort of those early days or those early games, you'll get a lot out of this because it's really quite enjoyable and the way that they approach it is in this very celebratory way. So it's really kind of celebrating these pioneers and innovators in this, you know, sentimental way, like it's pretty mushy and a bit corny, but I certainly found it very, very interesting. Before I keep rabbiting on, what was your take, Rob, coming into this? Well, I'm the person, as I was saying, that that thought that they knew something about all this from, from <laughs> from other pop culture um, mm. references and discovered that I know absolutely stuff all. <laughs> <laughs> so I was really fascinated by it. You've actually hooked me into this one. I'm going to continue watching it. Amazed to find out that the design of Pac-Man was developed from a pizza with a slice taken out of it, mm-hmm, which, mm-hmm, makes per- mm-hmm. which makes perfect sense. And that the Space Invaders octopuses were based upon the Martian fighting machines from H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. I thought you'd like that, yeah. I also was fascinated by the gaming championships where Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a good dodge for any gaming companies to support, none of which probably gets you recruited by the Star League to defend the frontier against Zer and the Kodan Armada, I'm sure. I did like that they used pixelated breakout animation to illustrate key Mm -hmm. moments. I mean, why would you mm-hmm. not, <laughs> including lots of uh, 8-bit music? It was also interesting to see how the video game boom turned into a bust mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm on board for this. I've watched two episodes so far. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have finished the series and I think – Yeah, they take a bunch of different angles and they really do map through a bunch of very interesting uh, phenomena. So they talk a bit about Atari, they talk about Nintendo and Sega, of course, early text adventures, RPGs, first-person shooters, the very first first first-person shooters, sports games, fighting games. So there's a whole lot here, but I think it's really packaged in its very nice way that's it's sort of anthropological and cultural in a way. Like it's, it's very not intimidating. I think I think the stuff here is just obviously who the people who've made this are very passionate about games and they want to teach people about some of these early developers and designers and we see a lot of those people and it's just full of those rich tidbits like the ones that you mentioned about, oh, I never knew this is how this emerged. I never knew this little fact about this character. Like that's really cool. And, yes, I thought there was a whole bunch of stuff like that. I think obviously it's – you know, there's so many angles you can take on the gaming industry and this isn't trying to delve into the dark side. It's not meant to be a critical analysis of video game trends. It's 
it's just celebrating like the early days of video games, how far it's come and all the people who've built on top of the building blocks of the people before them. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. I highly, I'm really hope you will keep watching it real because it's, it's joyful. I think there's yeah. a lot of interesting stuff here and a lot of really fun facts. So yeah, I, I enjoyed this one high score on Netflix. Hmm. I want to talk a bit more about it after we play a track here. Hmm. And the track is another uplifting one. Actually does not get more to infinity and beyondish than the last Starfighter main title theme by Craig Safan from that movie, which of course is all about elevating people who play arcade games to the stars. This is Robin Williams, creator of The Science Show, and you're listening to Zero G on Triple R FM. Got to have that da 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 So good. We've played so many rousing tracks today. I love it. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, mentally I am out there in the stars defending the Star League from Zerg and the Kodan Armada. <laughs> <laughs> Craig Safan's track from the last Starfighter, the main title theme. We did play that, of course, because we're talking about high score on Netflix. It's uh, How many episodes was it, by the way? So it was six episodes, so um, each about, yeah, 40 minutes or so. Yeah. And it's basically a history of the gaming industry, the video gaming industry. Actually, do we still call it that? Do we still call them video games or is it more correct to say they're computer games? I mean, I think we can say games industry in general because, you, as you'll see from the documentary as well, you know, there's a, a whole console computer, like, war, but they both were emerging around the same time. There were some interesting parallels along, you know, uh, of how different things could be done on a PC as opposed or a Mac as opposed to those early consoles. And I thought that was really interesting that each has had its own evolution, even though we are kind of in the same place these yeah. days. Like it's very, very, you're really splitting hairs to compare all of those things these days. And, and nevertheless, there are still arcade games actually in arcades. Absolutely. I think, and there's been a resurgence. I mean, I think with all this retro nostalgia resurgence lately as well, um, we've seen the rise of interest in stuff like arcade games and anything from the 80s, quite frankly. They did stumble early on. We were talking about the video game boom that went bust. Uh, Tie-ins to movies. Uh, There was Mm. a really crappy E.T. tie-in. So bad, some of those things, apparently. The famous famous E.T. game. Had you heard about that debacle before, Rob? No, no, I'm a noob, I'm a noob to this history. <laughs> well, as I said, no noobs here. I think um, you know, just fresh fertile soil for more knowledge. <laughs> I'd be a fake noob then, mm. if there's no no noob. <laughs> anyway, uh, in the second episode, I, I was particularly interested in the Nintendo Game Boy. There's a lot of insight into the marketing of this stuff too. I thought, yes, yeah. I, I was particularly fascinated with games counselors. Mm, you can actually phone up. These are like phone a YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Back in the day, and say, "Look, I'm stuck on level six of Donkey Kong. <laughs> How do I move on?" And then you hear the rapid shuffling of pages as they look through these incredibly intricate manuals. I think. I mean, there's something so about that kind of analog approach to things. I did. It did make me think back to how, yeah, I used to get like five games on a floppy disk or like you'd buy like a PC computer game magazine. It would come with a disk that had games on it and inside the magazine give you hints on what to do and things like that. I don't know. I kind of really, it made me feel quite nostalgic with everything available now. 
I like thinking back to a time when it wasn't all so easy to get. Yeah. Imagine playing online games on dial-up. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I do imagine that because I never actually did any of that. I was also quite taken with the idea that you could actually have a job as that gameplay counsellor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the guy who cheated a test for that job by writing all of the information inside his sunglasses. <laughs> It's <laughs> great. There's a lot of detail in, in this show just in the first two episodes that I've seen. Mm. So, yeah, definitely going to continue with it. So thank you for pointing that one out to me, Megan. Mm, happy to. And I guess when you think about it, there's people playing a lot of games in lockdown. Oh, yeah. And I think that's what's kind of cool is um, you can take a break and learn a little bit more about the origins of all that stuff. Yeah. As I was uh, saying once before, we actually did a review of this recently, um, Star Trek Fleet Command, which is uh, one of those online games that start out free with in-game purchases and stuff, basically riffs off the the Kelvin universe in Star Trek series. Mm. But they've recently, because you know how they, they give you patches, and this new patch is that they're opening it up to to all of the incarnations of Star Trek. Ooh, interesting. And, and the first of them is Star Trek Discovery. So now I'm busy sending out my mining ships to mine mushrooms, <laughs> my, mycelium spores. It's, it's absolutely insane. And there's another game that's hooked me into, Marvel's Strike Force. Oh. Kind of a little bit similar to the old Avengers Alliance game, Beloved mm-hmm. of... Mm. Marvel fans, mm. and we all mourn deeply when that bit the dust. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the same kind of thing. It's actually by the same people who do the Star Trek one. So there's similar sorts of tropes in common, you know, like, mm. well, you know how it all works. You've got to grind points to, and, and materials to do mm. stuff, all that sort of stuff. We'll get, we, maybe we'll do a reveal of that one day mm. at some stage after I've risen up a few more <laughs> ranks in the <laughs> And now, Megan, you have some uh, interesting bits and pieces, some blurts. Yes. Should we play a track before we get to those? We can just round off our video game uh, segment with one of my favourite scores. So we're going to play the Legend of Zelda Suite. Now, this is played by the London Philharmonic Orchestra, and it is from the album (laughs) very well aptly named Greatest Video Game Music. This is Neil Gaiman. It's well past 2000 AD, but Tharg still listens to Zero G. That was The Legend of Zelda Suite by the London Philharmonic Orchestra, of course, from the Nintendo Legend of Zelda games. Just played that in Ode to High Score, the documentary that Rob and I watched on Netflix. (laughs) So, Megan, as we round up to the hour... You have some uh, more things of interest for us. Yes. So I just wanted to draw your attention to a couple of trailers, which I'm sure you're across, but I just wanted to give a bit of a shout out to some stuff to get excited about coming up. So thing one is Rebecca. So I did not know they were making a another version, an adaptation of Rebecca, and I was very excited. And the more details that appeared to me in the trailer, the more excited I got. So Rebecca is, of course, a book by Daphne du Maurier. Uh, It was published in 1938. It's like a gothic fiction, vaguely Jane Eyre-esque, and it's probably most famously a Hitchcock film. He adapted a lot of her books. Uh, It was a Hitchcock film in 1940 starring Laurence Olivier and Joan Fontaine. And so we are now seeing another adaptation directed by Ben Wheatley, our faved 
director who has done a lot of horror, thriller, satire stuff in the past. He did Kill List, A Field in England, which I remember you really liked, Rob, and also High Rise, the J.G. Ballard adaptation that had Tom Hiddleston in it. So Ben Wheatley's helming this, which I'm excited by. I'm actually really keen to see what he does with the story. So it's kind of I won't go too much into it because I think we'll cover it when it's released, but you can watch the trailer now. And Army Hammer, who we know from Lone Ranger, Man from UNCLE and The Social Network, will be playing Maxim de Winter, the uh, the, the husband, I guess we're going to call him, and uh, Lily James from Cinderella, Baby Driver, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. She's playing Mrs. de Winter, the young, new young wife of Maxim. So... Pretty interested to see this one. It'll be out on Netflix on October 21st, so not too long to wait. Uh, so, yeah, trailer's available for that now if you want to check that out. So that's trailer one. Trailer two, I'm interested to see if you've seen this one yet, Rob. The June trailer is out. <laughs> so a couple details on this one. We won't go into it too much, obviously, because we want to, uh, we'll cover it like properly at the time. But this adaptation is directed by Denis Villeneuve, who we love from stuff like Arrival, Blade Runner 2049. He also did a film called Prisoners, which I'm still haunted by. So, He's adapted Frank Herbert's 1965 novel, and this is actually part one of a two-part, a planned two-part adaptation, which I didn't know. And yeah, check out the trailer. The cast is epic. It looks ambitious. I'm pretty excited. Like the cast on this thing is insane. We've got Timothy Chalamet in the lead role as Paul Atreides. Uh, we've also got a, a whole cast of characters from, uh, we've got Poe Dameron, so Oscar Isaac is in this. We've got Thanos, Josh Brolin is in this. We've got Drax, uh, Dave Bautista, Stellan Skarsgård, Zendaya, Jason Momoa, and uh, Rebecca Ferguson. So just amazing amount of great actors in this attached. So that's pretty exciting. Hans Zimmer will be doing the score. And uh, I haven't, like, I haven't read the book. I feel like I would like to read the book in the lead up to this, nor have I seen the 1984 Lynch film either. So I'm a bit of a June, very new to this. Uh, that one will be out in December 2020. So, Rob, what's your thoughts on the, the upcoming June? Well, I read June back in the day mm. and have read it quite regularly ever since. It's Ooh. one of those go-to books mm relatively recently read all of Frank Herbert's original June novels okay. in proper sequence just to get the flavour of it. I only care that they get right the fact that it's not actually meant to be uh, a hymn to Messianic religion. Mm-hmm. It's a, mm-hmm. a very important thing to remember when you're adapting June, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's a cautionary tale about that. Not perhaps as evident as much in the first book, but nevertheless still a, a valid point to make about the entire series and there should be some hints of that. And that did actually seem to come through in the trailer a bit. Mm-hmm. So with a cast like that, oh. a director like that, how could they possibly go wrong? Well, 
I mean, I'm, that's, that's the thing. Like I think all the pieces are there. And so I really, really want it to be good. I really, really, really want it to be good. Cause I think that director's amazing. Obviously that cast is incredible. Ugh, you know, it's just scary sometimes when these things, and I'm not even a June, like I'm not even someone who loves yeah. that book. So I reckon people are probably freaking out, but from all the, the trailer looked great to me. So I don't want to like, yeah, I, it looked good. I think hopes can be managed, but it looked pretty cool, I thought. The thopters had wings that moved. Mm. You know, this, the still suits didn't look too bad. Um, well, you know, modern sort of tactical influence placed upon them just as they did on Bob Ringwood's costumes for the original David Lynch movie. Uh, it's got a much more interesting cast than the miniseries. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's not as insane as Jodorowsky's version would have been. Mm-hmm. But- There's a good doco on that if you're interested in seeing the failed, uh, what would have been the 10-hour adaptation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, look, I'm always on board for a new adaptation, but I, look, I'm not hanging out for it because I've got the original book as my North Star. You know, it's ah. there for me. Well, I, I'm definitely going to pick it up. I think I, I'm keen to read it. So, yeah, I think I'll probably try and polish that off before the movie comes out to add it to my list to get to. Whenever the hell that movie does actually come out when movies. <sighs> I know. Well, it's slated for December, but, I mean, look. I, I don't know how. I don't know how we're going to watch it. I want to watch it. We'll figure it out. <laughs> Needs a big screen, I reckon, this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's it. And I, and I would actually pay $34 to see it on a streaming service. Yeah, same. Me too. <laughs> Unlike Mulan. <laughs> which, which we will cover when it's freely available to us. <laughs> yeah. I just can't pony up that much for a, a film on, on, on a streamer. But anyway, that's about it for Zero G for today. And I've had actually quite a bit of fun watching some of these shows and let's hope that things get better for people in Mm. whatever respects. So you're all heroes out there and that's what we're going to go with. Philip Glass's cover, (laughs) so to speak, (laughs) of David Bowie's Heroes. It's actually called his uh, Symphony Number no. 4 Heroes. We played it before, but I find it quite uplifting in that Philip Glass way of determinedly moving forwards. Coming up next is a Joe Brenatic with Astral Glamour, and I shall leave you with the hopefully the words of um, Diana Rigg as her character from Game of Thrones, her epic last words. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.